Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you here. Welcome. And those of you that are watching online, we welcome you as well. Um, I don't know how many of you are still without power like I am. Kirschman's maybe. You got power. I was thinking that we'd have more people who wanted to get warm. <laughs> anyway, good to see you all here. You know, it is Christmas on Saturday. Can you believe that Christmas is coming on Saturday. So so what we're going to do is we're going to worship the Lord this morning by singing some songs about Christmas. So let's get to it. If you are able to, stand up and let's get into the spirit of Christmas through some Christmas carols.
good to gather with you this morning here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. We're glad you're here with us, whether you're here in person or online. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. And a couple of things got to draw your attention to this morning. First of all, immediately following our service during the Sunday, our normal kind of Sunday school hour, we'll have our children's Christmas program. And so we would invite you to come. Stay, hang out, watch that. That'll be a great time to see little kids tell us the story of, of Christmas. And then on Christmas Eve, coming up later this week, we will gather here at 6 o'clock to celebrate the coming of our Savior first. We'd invite you to come be a part of our Christmas Eve worship service. So, one other thing, if you notice in your bulletin, if you got one on your way in, there's a, a green slip. talks about breeze. So if you've been around for a while, some of you may be familiar with this, but it's just a, it's a tool we have that has information for people in our church in it, um, and it has contact information as well as um, some other information for you to access, and so we just want to kind of encourage, kind of, since I've been here, I haven't done a great job reminding us or promoting it, we want to encourage us to use it for a couple reasons. One, you can find contact information for people you may need to contact in the church, but then also you can access your your giving statement for the year coming up on a new year with taxes and all that, you can access your giving information through Breeze. And so if, on Monday, if you don't have an active account, you'll get an invitation to create an account if, you, if we have your email on file here at church. Well, you'll get an invitation to create an account so you can access that information. If you have problems or questions about that, um, you can contact the church office. But it's, Good to kind of gather here with you for this fourth Sunday of Advent as we continue to remember just the anticipation and the waiting the people of Israel went through. Um, they waited for the coming of the Savior. So as we kind of prepare our hearts for that, let's pray together. Father, we... so thankful that we live here now on this side of the first advent that we know all that Jesus has come and done for us that you sent him to die on our behalf to be born to Mary as a baby and yet live a sinless perfect life we just thank you that even though there were years of waiting for the people of the Old Testament, you never forgot your promise. You never abandoned your people, even though we sin, even though we have no right to expect you to come to us. You did come to us in Jesus. So as we walk towards this Christmas and we remember again all you've done for us, that we to be amazed anew that you did not leave us in our sin, in our trials, and our struggles, but you came to us in the form of a baby. And now as we live waiting for your second advent, 
Would all that the people of the Old Testament endured, would it give us patience? Would it give us hope that you are not slow to keep your promises? You are not slow to come again. That you will one day come and you will make all things right. And as we walk through hard times, as I know many in our church are doing even now, we walk through hardship and struggles and trials. But our confident hope that there will be a second advent, will that give us the ability to persevere all that we face now? Confident that you will one day come and you will wipe away all pain and suffering and tears and there will be no more sin or death. We will live forever with you in the new heavens and the new earth. God, would this Advent season give us reason to hope and to find joy and to feel your love for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. And one of the ways we kind of remember and commemorate the coming of Jesus is through the lighting of our Advent candles. And so we're going to invite the Baumitz family. They're going to come and light our candle this morning for us. celebrate the fourth and final Sunday of Advent by lighting the candle of love. In 1 John 4, we read, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. These verses remind us that God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we can experience eternal life through him. And because we have experienced the love of the Father, we are able to extend that love to people around us. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for showing us your love for us by sending Jesus into the world so that we can experience eternal life. As we remember how much you love us this Christmas season, help us to share that love with others as well around us. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to watch a video clip from The Chosen. Just a little background on this clip. Um, it's a day when Jesus has been healing people all day. It's been a long day. His disciples are doing crowd control. They have a little tent encampment where they've been staying. And at dusk, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes and joins the crowd. And there's this football show. They're sitting around the campfire just talking. I understand. I feel like I need to not make any more mistakes. What do you think I felt? You must feel that every day. 
No. Not anymore. He always reassured me. And God always made me feel like I shouldn't be burdened. So how did you feel when that happened? When what happened? His birth. Even before that, how did you know, when did you know who he was? I don't know. We're all tired. Do you really want to hear all that? Yes. 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 Oh. Well, nothing about it was easy. I can tell you that. It wasn't in my hometown. My mother wasn't there. We had no midwife. I don't know if I'm ready to give all the details. Maybe some other time. But I do remember this. When Joseph handed him to me, it was like nothing I expected. It was like everything I'd heard about having a baby, but I thought this would be completely different. What do you mean? I had to clean him off. He was covered in... Uh... I will be polite. <laughs> he needed to be cleaned. He was cold, and he was crying, and he needed my help, my help, a teenager from Nazareth. It actually made me think for just one moment, is this really the Son of God? And Joseph later told me he briefly thought the same thing. But we knew he was. And I don't know what I expected. But he was crying and he needed me. And I wondered how long that would last. He doesn't need me anymore. Not since we taught him how to walk and eat. He hasn't needed me for a long time, I suppose. And after Joseph passed, may he rest in peace. He grew up even quicker. And I wish I could say that made me happy. Of course, as a Jew, I'm excited to see everything he does for our people. And I'm proud of him. Makes me a little sad sometimes. So it's good to be with all of you for a bit. I can find ways to help. We'll take it. Mm-hmm. If you'd stand, let's continue our worship.
Father, we praise you that this Jesus whose birth we anticipate throughout Advent is indeed the one who is worthy, who at the end of the time at the end of time will be worthy to open the scroll. Whose life with a worthy sacrifice so that we can be made right with you. Thank you for what an amazing, precious thing you've done for us in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This may come as a shock to those of you who know me a little bit, but like I've watched a fair bit of sports in my life. Like, I've been trying over the last, like, nine months to not care so much and to watch less, but like, still over the course of a lifetime, I've watched a fair amount. And, like, when you've watched, when you've spent as much time watching sports as I have, like, like one thing you learn is that sportscasters and announcers and commentators are incredibly uncreative. Like, they just rely on the same old cliches over and over, game after game. Like, my brother and I play a lot of, like, sports-based video games, and they have commentators on there who just have, like, pre-recorded lines or whatever, and they sound super natural. Right? And it's because, like, those pre-recorded commentators say the same thing over and over again, and real-life commentators say the same thing over and over again. They say the same old thing over and over. Like, I don't know how many times like, I've heard a sportcaster use cliches like, oh, that team won because like, they wanted it more. Like, whatever that means. Or their, or their backs were against the wall, and it was a must-win game. Like, it was do or die. They played with a chip on their shoulder. Again, whatever that means. Like, and they shocked the world. Like, they just talk about these same things over and over again. Another thing they talk about a lot is momentum. Like, They'll talk about how this one big play totally changed the momentum of a game. Or they'll talk about how this one team is coming into this game on a big, long winning streak, and so they have all the momentum on their side. Or they'll talk about how like, this one player is on an individual role. He has a, he has a hot hand, so that team should keep giving him the ball, because he has all the individual momentum. According to one study I read, 91% of fans believe that a player has a better chance of making their next shot if they just made their past two or three shots than if they just missed their past two or three shots. Uh, that feels right. Like, we tend to, like, it feels like one good thing tends to lead to another, like somebody can get on a roll. But according to the research, it's not true. According to objective research, like momentum in sport is not a real phenomenon. Like research has shown that a player is no more likely to make their next shot if they've made their last two or three than if they've missed their last two or three. Or like uh, as, a, as a team, like a basketball team that scored ten straight points, right, who's on a roll, who has all the momentum, right, is actually likely to be outscored over the next ten minutes of game time than a team that has not been on a roll. Like, all this research shows that momentum in sports isn't real. Like, I know this, I've read these studies, I've seen the data, and yet when I'm watching a game, it feels real. In fact, 
Amos Tversky, the psychologist who pioneered a lot of the research on this sport momentum, he once said, I've had a thousand conversations on this topic. I've won everyone, and I've convinced no one. Because it feels so real. Right? We, even if we had the data, it just feels real, and there's no convincing us otherwise. Like when my favorite teams are winning, but then the opposing team goes and makes two or three good plays in a row, like this panic starts to grow in me. Like, oh no, they have the momentum now. Conversely, when my team is doing poorly, but then all of a sudden a couple of good things start to happen, I can't, let, I can't help but let a little hope like, flicker up inside of me. But in the end, because momentum's not real, that only starts to be more devastating when my team comes crashing back to earth. And perhaps the best example I could think of, and by best I mean most heartbreaking, occurred in the 2016 playoff in the game between the Packers and the Arizona Cardinals. All hope seemed lost in that game. Like I was checked out. I was done. I didn't care. Like There's less than a minute left. The Packers were down by seven. They were backed up at their own five-yard line, so 95 yards from the end zone. They were down by a touchdown. They had fourth and 20. Like, hope is lost. It's over. Should have just turned the TV off right there. All right, but then Aaron Rodgers like, hits this 55-yard pass to Jeff Janis to get some down the field to keep the game alive. And then a couple plays later, there's a famous play where Rodgers kind of runs around for a while and then throws a Hail Mary up in the air, and Jeff Janik comes down with it with no time left, ties the game, and the game goes to overtime. Like just an incredible drive to tie the game. Like after that, like surely all the momentum is on the Packers' side. Like surely a win at that point is inevitable. So what happens? On the very first play of overtime, right, the Cardinals, the team that momentum is going against, completes a 75-yard pass, and two plays later they score a touchdown, and the Cardinals win the game. Right. Like watching the Packers lose that game would have hurt, no matter what. Right. But it was all the more devastating to have them seemingly have the momentum and then have everything fall apart at the last minute. Right? Like, Researchers call this feeling that like, good things tend to lead to more good things and vice versa. They call it psychological momentum. And it manifests itself in many areas besides sports. And we see that towards the end of the Old Testament, that God's people, I think, have, a, have an experience of psychological momentum. Right? So throughout most of the Old Testament, right, things are going poorly for God's people. Like mostly because of their own sin and their own disobedience. Like things are going poorly, and eventually, God judges the people by sending foreign conquerors. Right, so first, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by Assyria in 720 B.C. And then in 585 B.C., the Babylonians come, and they conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. They carry the people of Judah off into exile, and they destroy, most importantly, the temple. They destroyed the place where the people worshipped God, or the place where God's glory dwelt. Right, so right there, at that point, like things are going terribly for God's people. But it seems like that exile kind of rock bottom. And then things started to turn around. They started to gain some positive momentum, it seemed. 
After 70 years in exile, they're allowed to return from exile. They're allowed to return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. Like they rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And Ezra reinstitutes worship at the temple. It seems like things are going better for God's people. It seems like they had all the momentum on their side. Like, surely this would continue. But then all that good stuff just comes to a screeching halt. It doesn't take long before like, the people had returned for things to start going poorly again. In order to see that, I want us to look at the book of Malachi this morning. And I want to first kind of just walk us through the first couple of chapters of this book, and then we'll zoom in at the very end of chapter 2 and the and beginning of chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to Malachi. We'll be there in a, in a minute. And so we don't know precisely when this Malachi lived and wrote, but there's enough information in the book itself that we can be reasonably confident that Malachi lived around the same time, maybe a little bit after Nehemiah, right, who led the rebuilding of the walls. We have this picture here. I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but it's a timeline of the kind of later portions of the Old Testament. You see Malachi in that box there in the, kind of the bottom right. So he's the last person to write, the last prophet of the Old Testament. You see him overlapping with Nehemiah there right on the timeline. He's the last book of the Old Testament because he's the last person chronologically to write in the Old Testament. And we can tell from some of the details in the book that God's people like, must have returned from exile by the time he's writing. And we know that because like, the book of Malachi set up the series of six arguments, six disputes between God and his people. And one of those arguments is about how the people are offering blemished sacrifices. They're offering sacrifices that are blemished instead of spotless and pure. Right? But in order, for, in order for people to offer sacrifices, blemished or otherwise, right, there had to be a temple for the sacrifices to be offered in. And so the temple was clearly rebuilt by the time Malachi is writing. And so he's on this return from Jerusalem side of things where things seem to be going well. So that's what makes the contents of the book of Malachi so shocking. The people are back. Things are going well for a while. But as I said, Malachi is set up as a series of six disputes between God and his people. And what we learn from these disputes is that people are disputing with God over the same sins that got them sent into exile in the first place. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, the people are questioning whether God loves them. And then in chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 9, verse 2, the people aren't honoring God in their worship. They're offering blemished sacrifices. They aren't bringing their best to God in worship. And then in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, the people are dishonoring God by marrying people who, are, who worship foreign gods. Or if they did marry their fellow Jews, they're dishonoring God by being unfaithful and divorcing their spouses. And then we come to the passage I want to kind of focus in on this morning. It starts in verse 17 of chapter 2 and goes through verse 5 of chapter 3. And in this passage, the people are sinning by questioning God's justice. And they're 
questioning God's justice because evil people seem to be prospering. And if you were here last week, that should sound familiar. Because in Psalm 37, the, the very thing that David warned the people not to do was question God when it seemed like the wicked were prospering. And all the people of Malachi, having gone through the, the exile and all these trials, are doing the very same thing. Let's read this passage together and we'll see more. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Right, so again, to summarize, like the book of Malachi, up to this point, is all about how like, the people of God are committing the very same sins that got them sent into exile. Right, despite the fact that Ezra had led this very concerted effort to renew worship in the new temple after the return, nothing had really changed. The people are still prone to the same old sins. Things were better for maybe a short while when Ezra first instituted this renewed worship. The people for a little bit were able through, like, through self-effort to make themselves act holy for a little while. But they quickly fell back into the same old sins and patterns of ungodliness. It's the big, the big lesson in all of this. Right? Is that as if God's people are going to live lives that honor God, that they need more than just renewed worship. That's what Ezra rebuilt the temple and offered for. Like, he offered renewed worship, a chance to do the same old things in a new way, and it didn't change anything. But the people need more than to recommit themselves to the old way of trying hard to follow God's rules. If God's people are going to live God-honoring lives, they need more than renewed worship. They need to be fundamentally changed. They need, in Malachi's words, refining fire. They need something outside of themselves that will fundamentally change and purify their worship. Since the return from exile, the people had attempted to renew their worship by using the same old methods but with a fresh helping of self-effort. Like, surely, like, the memory of the exile and all that that entailed, 
Like, surely that would be enough of a motivator to get the people to do better this time. But it turned out that wasn't the case. The people have fallen back into their same old sins. The point being, they needed something fundamentally different. They needed to be changed and purified and refined. When I was a fifth grade teacher, I taught science, and one of the things I taught was the difference between a physical change and a chemical change. And the key differentiator is that a physical change is reversible because no new substance is produced. So the example you always use is like water. You can melt ice into water and then freeze it again and it's back into ice and it's the same substance, just in a different form. Whereas a chemical change fundamentally changes things. It's not reversible because it creates a new substance. So we always talk about fire as the example of this. If you have a campfire, it doesn't matter what you do with all that ash that's left over, like, you're not turning it back into logs. Like, you can't turn it back into wood because the wood has been chemically transformed into something altogether new. It's a chemical change. And what God is saying through Malachi in this passage, that if, if my people are going to honor me, they need more than a mere physical change. Like, it can't be the same old substance in a new form. It must be something altogether new. The old temple worship didn't work then, and it wasn't working now under Ezra. In fact, like the old temple worship, or the, in the, new, the new temple, was found to be even less effectual than it was in the old temple. Because God's glory, His presence, doesn't seem to ever have returned to the rebuilt temple. And so when the, when the temple was first built, when the, it was first completed, there was this, there's this magnificent scene found in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. So the temple is completed. The priests bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And then we get this picture. We read, When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There's this very real and obvious sense that God's glory filled that temple when it was completed. Likewise, even before the temple itself was built, when the people were worshiping God at the tabernacle, like the big tent in the wilderness, we read in Exodus chapter 40, a similar thing. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's this real tangible sense that the glory of God is there and the priest or Moses can't even go in. There are evident signs that God was present in that place through His glory. But then if the Babylonians were closing in on Jerusalem and preparing to send the people of Judah into exile, the prophet Ezekiel has this vision. It's in Ezekiel 10, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's this vision of God's glory leaving the temple. That God's glory leaves. And one of the problems with this resumed temple worship in Malachi's day is that even though they've rebuilt the temple, we see no indication that God's glory ever returned 
to that temple. We get no similar scene that we get in First Kings with the old temple. Like, we never see God's glory fill the new temple. And all that helps us make sense of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. Again, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So the people are seeking after God. They're looking for God to return to his temple but he hasn't yet. They're they're aware of this lack of God's glory filling the temple. But we see here in Malachi 3 that the one who will usher in this change of worship, the one who will return God's glory to the temple will eventually come. But when he comes, when he returns, it, it will be sudden. It will be unexpected, Malachi tells us. And Malachi gives this one who is to come, who will return God's glory to the temple, he gives him an interesting name. He calls him the messenger of the covenant. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? What is the messenger of the covenant? I think what Malachi is doing in using that terminology, that phrase, the messenger of the covenant, and he's pointing his readers' minds to the book of Jeremiah. Like Jeremiah wrote right before and while the people were in exile. And he wrote it's like he wrote both first warning them and then to give them hope while they were in exile. And as a way of giving them hope, at one point he gives them a vision of a coming day when God will come and he will make a, a new covenant with his people. So in chapter one, chapter thirty one of Jeremiah, we read this. The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their heart. I will write it in their, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah said, There is coming a day when God will make a, a new covenant with his people. And this new covenant will involves fundamentally changing the way he relates to his people. He says, no longer will they teach their neighbors to say one another, say to one another. They said, because they will all know me. There's this new covenant coming. And through this new covenant, God will forgive his people's sins and remember their sins no more, according, according to Jeremiah. So if we can kind of zoom out, we can put Malachi and Jeremiah together. They give us this picture of God's people who desperately need a new way of being made right with God. They desperately need a new way to worship. And then suddenly, the Lord will come to the temple. 
And when this Lord comes to the temple, He will be the messenger of the covenant. He will usher in the new covenant that Jeremiah promised. And that new covenant will involve the law of God being written on people's heart. It will involve God forgiving people's wickedness and remembering sins no more. And both Malachi and Jeremiah speak of this event coming, this event happening in the future. But people must wait for the coming of this messenger of the covenant. But then after Malachi, God goes silent for 400 years. No new prophets, no new promises, just silence. Like that silence was so long that it's honestly kind of surprising to me that after all those years, anyone was still waiting for that promise to come true. It's surprising to me that anyone was still waiting for the messenger of the covenant to suddenly come to the temple. But there were people who were still waiting. And one of those people was a man named Simeon. We see his story in Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, we read this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. So after all these years, the Simeon is still waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's still waiting for the one, the promised one to come. Continuing in Luke chapter 2, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. And so all of a sudden, Simeon is prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple, to go to the place where Malachi said the Lord would suddenly appear. And at the temple, Simeon sees this young couple walk in carrying a baby. And the Holy Spirit reveals to Simeon, this, this is him. This is the one you've been waiting for. Continuing in Luke. And Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And don't miss that word, glory. This, the glory of God that left the temple when the Babylonians came and never returned after the temple was rebuilt. Right, but now, in this baby Jesus, God's glory, His presence has suddenly come to the temple, just as Malachi promised. This little baby is the messenger of the covenant, the one who will usher in Jeremiah's promised new covenant, the one who will fundamentally change the way that people relate to and are made right with God. And that's why when we take communion... We remember that Jesus said, like, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
And why at his death, the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Because the temple is not the way we relate to God anymore. Jesus, he is the one that Jeremiah promised who will forgive our wickedness, who will remember our sins no more. He is the one who will, to use Malachi's word, sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Malachi calls him a refiner. And this picture of refining is a picture of our sins being removed. Like metal, metal workers refine metals like silver and gold in order to remove, remove impurities from the metal. And that's what Jesus does for us. He removes our impurities. He refines us. But there are two things we need to notice about this image of refining. First thing we need to notice is that like, metal cannot refine itself. Now, it requires the work of a refiner and a refiner's furnace in order to refine metal. And likewise, we can't deal with our own sin. We cannot, in our own self-effort, stop, us from, stop ourselves from doing what we want and disobeying God. And even if we could, we can't, we can't remove from ourselves all the impurities that our past sins have already left us with. But so often what we try to do. We try to just will ourselves to be good people. Like we just try different tips and techniques and methods to get ourselves to stop giving in to our sins. But ultimately they all fail because we can't refine ourselves. That's what the people of the Old Testament did over and over again. They thought they could will themselves to keep God's laws in their own power. But they failed over and over again. Which is why I said at the beginning, like, God people require more than renewed worship. They require refining fire. Renewed worship was never going to be enough. And the second thing we need to notice about refining, is that it's not a gentle, easy process. It involves extreme heat in order to remove impurity from metal. In order to refine gold, you need to heat the gold to close to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And likewise, the process of, of having our sin dealt with is not an easy or a comfortable process. It can involve a kind of pain because we love our sin so much. We, we don't want to let it go. And so having it removed from us hurts. In fact, the New Testament calls this process, referred to as a kind of death. That the old self, the sin-loving self, needs to die. We need to be made into an altogether new creation. And death is not a comfortable and easy process. C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of this process in his, in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia series. And in this book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a character named Eustace. And Eustace is annoying. Like, like, he, like he's selfish, and he's greedy, and he's whiny, and he's spoiled, and he complains constantly. He's just annoying. But eventually, through a series 
of events fueled by his greed and his selfishness, Eustace gets himself turned into a dragon. And no matter what he tries, he can't get rid of his dragon skin. He tries to remove it, he tries to take it off himself, but every time he removes a layer of dragon skin, he finds he has another layer underneath. And eventually Eustace loses all hope of ever changing back into a human. But then Aslan, the lion, shows up and he says, you will have to let me undress you. By undressing means remove the dragon skin. You have to let me take the dragon skin off of you. And here's how Lewis tells the rest of the story from Eustace's perspective. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. When he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only that they hadn't hurt. And there it was, laying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was, under, I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then, it, then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. When I read, I'm not always great at imagery and metaphor, so just so we're clear, the dragon skin, the picture of sin, as well as the picture of Jesus. Like Eustace, right? he couldn't remove the dragon skin, the sin himself. He couldn't turn back into a boy in his own power. He needed Aslan to remove the scales for him. But that process was a painful one. Eustace says it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But then he goes on to say, the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff peel off. And that just strikes with such a, an accurate description of what it feels like to have Jesus deal with our sin. It hurt worse than anything we've ever felt because we love our pet sins so much. But the only thing that makes us able to bear the pain is the simultaneous pleasure of feeling our sin being peeled off. So here's the big question from all this. Have you submitted yourself to the refiner's fire? Have you asked Jesus to remove your dragon skin and turn you back into the person He created you to be? Jesus came, born as a baby to Mary, 
in order to make it possible for us to be refined, to have our sins removed from us, in order for us to be able to be purified, so that we can spend eternity with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. And in that new heavens and the new earth, we will be in our, our fully human form, our fully in the image of God form, the way we were made to be. No more sin weighing us down. And all that's required for Jesus to do that for you. For you to trust in Him and ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to refine you. So if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus. you never asked for that kind of forgiveness and that refining. I just invite you to go to Him. He's the only one who can do it. Maybe you feel the weight of your sin. You want to be free of some sin, but you know you can't do it in your own power. Go to Him. He's the one who can do it. Ask for forgiveness. So those of us who are here this morning who have trusted Jesus, who have had the process of refining started in us, hear my encouragement for us. Don't forget that Jesus is still the refiner. It's one thing to trust Jesus at the start of the refining process and trust Him to remove all your past sins. But then it's really easy to think, okay, well, Jesus did that. He took care of my past sins, my old life. But now that I know Jesus, it's on me to live a life that honors Him. It's on me to get rid of the rest of my sin. It's on me to use all my self-effort to live the life He wants me to live. And yes, we should strive to live lives that honor God. But if we think we're now suddenly capable of doing it in our own power, then we're going to be in for a rude awakening. Jesus is still the refiner. He's still at work in each of our lives to cast out any remaining impurities. One kind of concrete example of this. We're coming up on on New Year's with New Year's resolutions. And for many of us, like those New Year's resolutions will involve spiritual resolutions. Maybe it will involve starting a new Bible and a year plan or whatever it may be. And those things are all great. They're great as long as you don't burden them with more hope than they can bear. It's really easy to start some new spiritual discipline some new reading plan, and think, like, I'm just going to commit myself to make sure I do this every day. And because I do this, I know that I'm going to draw closer to God. We can become very legalistic about it. We can expect God to uh, transform us by something we're doing in our own power, through our own self-effort. But yes, by all means, like, read your Bible. Commit yourself to spiritual disciplines. But don't forget that the work of purifying, the work of drawing you closer to God is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit who came because of the work of Jesus. We still need, even now, having known Jesus, we still need the refiner to refine us. We still can't refine ourselves. We can't get rid of our own sin and our own power. We still need the power of God to help us overcome the sin in our lives.
so while you read your Bible, while you commit yourself to various spiritual disciplines, while you do things that you hope will deepen your fellowship with God, never forget that you won't get there by your own self-effort. I always start all those things by asking God to work in you, to be the one who refines you, to be the one who purifies you, to be the one who draws you closer to Himself, because it is still His work, not our own self-effort. Let's pray. Father, we, I confess that it's so easy for me to fall back into patterns of trying to prove my own righteousness or my own self-effort. To think that I got it all figured out on my own. That I can will myself to live in the life you call me to live. Just that the people in Malachi's time, that kind of self-effort only leads to my failures, my falling short, and my own sin. God, I pray for each of us that you would make us aware of the sin in our lives that still needs to be refined. You would show us the ways we're relying on our own self-effort to try to get rid of those sins, to see, help us to see how that self-effort fails. And God, would you send each of us this morning running to Jesus for refinement, whether for the first time trusting in Him to have our sins forgiven or after many years of following Him, to have remaining sins worked at in our lives and having remaining sins purified from us. Father, we look forward to the day when we stand in glory with You having this refining process finally fully completed. Look forward to the day when we stand on the new heavens and the new earth and there is no sin remaining in us. But until that day comes, we continue to run to You for forgiveness, for help in fighting our sin. Trusting that You have already forgiven us through the work of Jesus and You delight to help us conform more and more into the image of Your Son if we would seek Your help. Father, would we seek your help, becoming more like Jesus? Would we live lives that bring you honor, bring you glory in this life now, even as we wait for that future glory? Pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. One quick note. We mentioned the children's Christmas program will take place after the service. So if you're a child here, right after the service, and like, Two minutes after I dismiss you, you can just head right over there. You'll kind of gather over there and get set to go. Then we invite you adult back up here in a little bit to 
watch the children program. So as we go from here, would you go trusting that Jesus is the one who refines us, trusting that Jesus can make us pure, and that one day we will stand with God and with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, fully and totally pure. Until that day comes, would we go seeking to give Him glory, seeking to live lives that honor Him. You are dismissed.